You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We will be studying the book of Revelation in just three Sundays. But until then, I want to make sure that we are all on the same page. I want to make sure that we are on the same page of who we are as a church, that we get our our blueprint for what we're about, that we get our blueprint for what we're doing this morning from this ancient book, this book that we believe was inspired and written by God through human authors. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is the book and the resource through which we are directed to everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we get our direction as a church from this book. And many of you who have been coming know that the mission statement of our church is that we'd like to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied to the glory of God. I see some of you mouthing that. That is what we are about. We, we draw that from Scripture. But it's important for us to not just know the mission statement, but to actually understand how that plays out. How do we actually live that out within the context of the local church? And we understand that the Great Commission tells us that we do this by making disciples. But we also need to understand that a healthy disciple worships Christ, walks with him, and works for him. And we're unpacking that over this three-part sermon series. Last week, we laid the foundation that a healthy disciple must begin by worshiping Christ. And we went through the story of Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria. We saw the example of Jesus himself, that he valued the Father and the Father's will above everything else. And because of that, when there was challenge in his life, when there were convergence of difficult circumstances, he was able to joyfully obey, joyfully move forward because of the value that he placed on his Father and fulfilling his Father's will. And then he was confronted by a woman just like us, a human being full of sin, a woman who thought that worship was limited to the outward expressions, the locations of worship, putting forth a face that she wanted others to see, even though that wasn't truly who she was. And Jesus confronted that lovingly by pointing to her to the fact that worship is all about value, the value that you place on things and on people. And that ultimately for a healthy follower of Jesus Christ, a healthy disciple of Jesus Christ, we must place our ultimate value on Jesus Christ himself. And so this week, we we move from that foundation and we build upon it by recognizing that it's important for a disciple of Jesus Christ to walk with him. And even in that, the concept of walking is something that we can relate to. My wife and I, as a result of the sabbatical, have decided that a rhythm of health for us, for our marriage, for our physical health, is to take at least three walks together weekly. And we do that, and we talk, and we, we, we pray together, and it has been extremely fruitful in our lives. But I was reminded this last week of how important it is for the equipment that we use when we walk. We're in that time of the season here in the Midwest where it can be 90 degrees one day and then 55 degrees the next. 
So I decided one of my walk days is that I would walk with my long pants, long sleeves that I wore here to church. And it was one of those 90 degree days. And like five minutes in, I was pitting out. I'm reminded of how important it is to have proper shoes when you're walking, to make sure that you're hydrated, to make sure that you have a plan. Being resourced in our walking is important for us to be effective and efficient when we walk. And what this passage is going to remind us is that God has designed the local church and the walking in the local church to be the resources that we need to live out the Christian life. Look at the big idea in your notes. The walk of the Christian life is resourced for exactly what we need to do it. And I intend to show that to you through these 16 verses in Ephesians 4. Would you follow along as I read aloud? Paul writes, I, in verse 1, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body... And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And hopefully you can see there where Ben got the words for that song that he sang. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the measure of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God, of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Three reminders and one realization that will help us as individuals and as a church walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Number one, remember your identity. Remember your identity. And I draw that from the first two words of Ephesians 4.1. Paul writes, I, therefore. I want to home in on that word, therefore. We say here at Ascend that when you read the Bible, when you see the word, therefore, you must ask the question, what is it, therefore? That's right. And so the therefore word will draw our attention back as well as whet our appetite to look forward. And so Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore. 
Based on the first three chapters, he will be going forward. He will be moving forward to application. And so it's important for us to review what were the first three chapters. And really, it was mostly about identity. What is our identity? Identity is very important. In fact, I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. Identity is the filter through which we view ourselves. It is the filter through which we are, uh, view ourselves, and it impacts and influences the way that we think, the way that we speak, and the way that we live. I mean, just think about this in a normal horizontal context. A husband and wife have the identity of marriage. That is the filter through which they view themselves, and it affects the way that they speak, the way that they think, and the way that they live. What's appropriate for a man to think, speak, and live about a woman as a single is very different than when he's married. Wives, that's an opportunity for you to say amen. <laughs> as a teacher and a student, as a teacher, that influences the way that it is appropriate to think, speak, and live about your students. As an employer, as an employee, and you see what I'm doing here, and that is our life context and our identities are the filters through which we view ourselves, and it influences the way that we think and we speak and we live, and that is appropriate. But what is your ultimate identity? And the answer for that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it will leave you with one of two identities. But I think it's important here, before we go back to Ephesians 1, to remind ourselves that the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with God and not ourselves. Would you write that down? It's important for us to understand that the good news of Jesus Christ begins with God and not ourselves. You see, so many times when we think of the gospel, we begin with our sin. We begin with our need. We begin with heaven and hell, but beloved, the good news must begin with God himself or else our understanding of sin, our understanding of heaven and hell is going to be skewed. Let me model that by going back to Ephesians 1 and seeing how Paul emphasizes God in the first few verses. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is the emphasis? It's on God. But listen, even as he transitions to us, look at his perspective. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. What an amazing and humbling starting point for the gospel of Jesus Christ that it begins with God, and even when it gets to us, it's looking at us through the Godward lenses of what Paul has just unpacked. And then we get to where the first opportunity for you to find your identity is. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. There's that word walk. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. Notice that phrase, we all once lived. Every one of us begin with this as our identity. In fact, you can write down Psalm 51.5. King David reflects on his conception, which, by the way, life begins at conception. The whole point of abortion and what makes it wrong and sin is that it intentionally ends a human life that is just as much human before birth as it is after birth. That is God's perspective. And listen, there may be some of you who have abortion in your past or have friends that have had abortions. And what I'm not saying is that there's not grace. What I'm not saying is that there's not compassion, but what I'm saying is let's start by viewing the topic as God views it and as he has prescribed it, and then we can build upon there. But David, reflecting on the theological truth that is not dependent upon science, says that in sin he was conceived. That at the moment of conception, when that child becomes a human being, we are sinners. We are dead in our trespasses. This is who we are. This is what our will is. This is our nature. And Paul says, every one of us were this. And we lived out our own desires. We were king of the thrones of our lives. And friends, boy, do we see that on display today, don't we? Which, by the way, I'm going to give you a little teaser for the book of Revelation. Our day and age is not really unique. It is unique in that we have social media. It is unique in in that when the Queen of England dies, we know immediately, and we see pictures, and we see video, and it's live streamed. But the human heart has not changed. God's working has not changed. And just as today people are so focused on living out their own desires and passions, so were they in the first century. That's what Paul says here. As he says in verse 3, we were all once living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What does that mean? It means I can be whatever I want to be. It means I can love whoever I want to love. And don't you tell me who I can love or who I actually am. I'm autonomous. It was no different back in the first century. And so Paul is making an observation that applies to all human beings, all throughout history, all throughout time, including today, including this same room. This is our first identity. But friends, two of the most important words in all of Scripture are found in verse 4. But God. But God, being rich in mercy... This is where we move to the second identity that some of us have, and that is because of his great love. Not because of us. Not because at some point in my life I got to a place where this all made sense to me. Because I'm intellectually powerful, I was able to make a choice and choose God. No! It's because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And because God, who is rich in mercy... Not only did he make a way, he saved us. Look at what it says. It says that he made us alive though we were dead. 
Praise God. And, and how did he make us alive? Look down at verse 8. For by grace. Let's just stop right there. That, that's a churchy word, isn't it? You see emails that come out and people are like, you know, grace, grace to you. And it can be very easy for us to just read that and take the churchy response. Yeah, grace, it's undeserved favor. But see, when you've unpacked the gospel like we have, this word is powerful. By grace, it is a gift. We brought nothing to the table. In fact, we brought death to the table. But God, who is rich in mercy, grace gifted what? Verse 8, faith. Friends, let that be the backbone of our understanding of this word. Faith is not some religious term. It is the path to life, and it is a gift. I did not exercise a faith that was on my own. The faith back in 1987 on Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga, Tennessee, that I demonstrated by believing in God, by placing my trust in God, by asking him to forgive my sins and committing my life to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior was a gift from him. And that faith was placed not in religion, verse 8, but Jesus Christ. It's not works. It's not religion. It's nothing that I did. It's the completed work of Jesus Christ, grace gifted to me, and by God's grace, I responded. And so, friend, if that is you, then you have this as your identity. There are really only two identities in the world. You are either a sinner, dead in your trespasses, or you are a grace-filled, faith-induced follower of Jesus Christ and a son of God that has expectations. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He has created us in Christ Jesus for good works to walk in the manner worthy of our calling. And so, friends, it begins, when we're thinking of healthy discipleship, it begins with the gospel as our identity. Here, I'll ask the team to put this quote up on the screen if they have it, but it, I think it really well articulates the gospel. Listen to this. God is holy. And apart from his intervention, we willfully pursue our own desires, justly placing us under his wrath. Sit in that for a moment. We are justly under his wrath because of our sin. But gracious God provided a solution, the death of his perfect son as a payment for the sins of those who by grace, not effort, by faith, surrender their sin. They do so in repentance and submit to Jesus as Lord. And those who do this will be saved, not only from the wrath of God, but from their own bondage to sin and the glorious transformation. It removes us from the slavery to sin and it frees us to live in worshipful obedience, putting on display the majestic new creation of Almighty God. Is this your identity? If not, friend, I beg you, give your life to Christ. 
Friends, this is the only hope and help in this life. Stop pursuing the smoke that lingers after you blow out the birthday candles. That's all this world has to offer you. No achievement, no career, no possessions, no status in this life will ever deliver the satisfaction that God has created us to long for. It's only through Christ and a relationship with him. So friend, if this is not your identity, please surrender to Christ today. If this is your identity, are you living in light of that identity? So friends, healthy disciples, first of all, remember their identity. Second of all, remember your mission. Remember your mission. God has given us a mission. He does not leave us just saved by grace through faith in Christ. He does so so that we live differently so that we think differently, so that we speak differently. We see our life context differently. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. Now, as best as we can tell, the Apostle Paul was sitting in a Roman, dark, damp, smelly prison. And yet Paul is writing this and says, listen, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. How many of you, how often do I, when we're in life circumstances that we would not choose, say, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Paul had that perspective, and he understood his mission. And he instructs the readers to understand and follow the mission. Look at verse 1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Our mission is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And if you haven't studied this or if this is kind of new to you, it doesn't sound clear, does it? What does that mean to walk in a manner worthy of the calling? And and Paul almost anticipates that, it seems, and he unpacks what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And it's really four categories of holiness that I would encourage you to write down. If we want to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and fulfill the mission that God has given for his disciples, it begins with personal holiness. It begins with personal holiness. Look look at verse 2, with all humility. Maybe you've heard it said that humility is thinking of yourself less. But biblically, it's thinking of others more. It begins by this personal holiness. And listen, friend, we do not do this on our own, do we? I don't naturally think of others more highly than myself. I have to follow the mind of Christ, and I need the Spirit's power to accomplish that. But then another aspect of holiness, personal holiness, verse 2, is with gentleness. And this is not just an attitude. This isn't just a personality. It's also a way of life. Are you characterized by gentleness, even when you have to deliver tough news, even when you have to lead with conviction? Are you characterized by gentleness? This is an example of personal holiness. Then look at the next word. We have patience. Patience often is equated with waiting, isn't it? We like to tell our girls, at least we did when they were growing up, by now they're perfect. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Not at all. And in fact, neither are their parents. But gospel-centered patience is waiting with a happy heart. Or to even be more intentional, waiting with a joyful disposition. 
I mean, again, look at who's writing. Paul, a prisoner, waiting to find out, is the emperor going to give him thumbs up or thumbs down for his life? He says, be patient. Wait with a joyful disposition. Friends, this is personal holiness. This is how we as healthy disciples of Jesus Christ can even think about fulfilling the mission is we must be cultivating in our lives a personal holiness. But then a second category of holiness is relational holiness. Would you write that down? Relational holiness. It says in verse 2, bearing with one another. And bearing can often have the same initial reaction is patience okay as long as i can fold and cross my arms and put up with my spouse as long as i can fold and cross my arms and put up with my neighbor or my kids or the person in my small group but look at the gospel phrase that follows after bearing with one another bearing with one another in love Now, specifically, this context, anytime you see one another in the New Testament, 9.9 times out of 10, which is a lot, it's referring to the community of the local church. And that's what Paul's doing here. The local church is messy, isn't it? It's messy. All you have to do is stick around for a while and actually engage with the local church, and you will find out it is messy. Ascend church is messy. And if you came to a place that you thought was going to be a country club, this isn't your church. You will find that your small group leaders sin. You will find that they don't always respond in the way that you would want them to respond. You will find out that your pastor sins. That your pastor doesn't deliver what you hoped that he would deliver. We are all sinners saved by grace. That is the one another that we have been entrusted with, and we're supposed to bear with one another in love. Relational holiness. I love what it says in verse 3 that we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Remember that we need the Spirit, don't we? All of this that I'm talking about here, we cannot do on our own. We need the Spirit's power, and we need to be eager to maintain unity. That is not natural. We are such a cynical people by nature. We are such a complaining people by nature. Think about how many times you attend an event, and you walk away, and you ask your friend or your spouse, what do you think about that? Usually we lead with criticisms, don't we? But we are eager in the body of Christ to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then look what it says, in the bond of peace. I think that wording is intentional. Bonding is shackles in a prison. The Apostle Paul is speaking from his context. But we are bound to what? To peace. That is the objective of our relationship in the body of Jesus Christ. And friends, this is how we can even hope to accomplish our mission of walking in a manner worthy of our calling. So we have personal holiness. We have relational holiness. But then number three, we have centered holiness. Look at the reminder that Paul gives. There is one body, one spirit. 
just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Sounds repetitive, doesn't it? But, but, but usually in the Bible, if something is repeated, it's important. And Paul is reminding his readers, just like he's reminding us today, that there is only one way. There is only one God. There is only one solution. But as we look at the world around us and as we consider religion, there are really only two religions. There is one religion category that is about doing something on our own. It is accomplishing religious favor through works. Something that I can do. That's category one. And all the religions in the world, except biblical Christianity, fall into that category. But the second category is biblical Christianity. It is Christ-centered gospel religion. And it does not require or depend on our works. It requires and depends on the work completed of Christ. That is why Paul is emphatic that in a Roman Empire that is similar to our world today, Again, just realize the Roman Empire is not much different than America today. You want to believe in this? Believe in that. You want to believe in that? Believe in that. Don't tell me what I'm supposed to believe. I'm autonomous. I'm independent. It's the same world. And Paul says, no, 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 there's one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. One Father over all and through all. So we have personal holiness, we have relational holiness, we have centered holiness, but then number four, we have hero holiness. Let me explain this. I, I love Halloween. Now, some of you, that might get me in trouble. I don't love what secular society and what our, our world today represents as Halloween. I actually love how it started with the Reformation. But I love watching little kids. We don't get to see this as much anymore because our girls are older. But I loved walking through the neighborhoods and seeing little pint-sized Darth Vaders. <laughs> and as they're walking by me like this with their lightsabers, I, I swear I could hear, <laughs> the little Pat Mahomes are walking around with their mullet and their number 15 jerseys. And on that night, they have been transformed by whatever they were the day before to their heroes. They dress like their heroes. They act like their heroes. They even breathe like their heroes, which, by the way, if your hero is Darth Vader. Well, actually, when you watch all night, never mind. <laughs> Friends, that's what Paul's unpacking here is that our hero is Christ. But grace, verse 7, was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. And who is this Christ? Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And then thankfully, Paul unpacks this, verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? 
And I know there's a lot of debate as to what that actually means. Here's what I think Paul is saying because of looking at how Paul uses these phrases in Ephesians and in his other writings. Is what he's doing is he's putting on display that the God of the universe who spoke the universe into existence, that is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament, that is he said in 2 Corinthians 2, that in Christ all the promises are yes and amen. This glorious God actually descended to the earth that we all live in. And like the author of Hebrews, he experienced all the temptation categories that we experience, yet without sin. And so therefore, we have a high priest who is not out of touch with our life experience. He actually experienced it all. He can relate to us. And that's what Paul's describing here. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. I hope you are. Verse 10, he descended he who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And, and Paul is giving us phrases that if we were dutiful, we would delight to unpack these and spend entire sermons for the rest of the year explaining what that means. This is the God of the universe. He humbled himself and became a man, lived in this corrupted world, with all of the influences that you and I experience, all the limitations of sickness, of pain, of suffering, of being tired, yet without sin, perfectly modeling to us what true discipleship looks like. Oh, friends, I pray this is your hero. And friends, when this is your hero, then we understand the mission. The mission, friends, is to think and act and speak like Jesus and to put him on display in this dark world. That is the mission. So, so now back in verse 1, when Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, you can write out to the side or you can put in your notes, the mission is to think and speak and act like Jesus and put him on display in this dark world. That is the mission of discipleship. And so, friends, that's what we endeavor to do here at Ascend. As imperfect as we are, following our perfect Christ. But the only way that can happen is when we're pursuing personal holiness, relational holiness, centered holiness, hero, hol hero holiness. But listen, he doesn't leave us here. He brings us to the third reminder. Remember your tools. Remember your tools. I've preached through Ephesians, and man, did we unpack this and dug deep into every phrase of these following verses, so I'm not going to spend all the time to do so, but I'll capture the highlights. Verse 11, he, Christ, our hero, gave the apostles and prophets. Let me stop right there. Again, not taking the time to unpack this fully, but I believe, and I'll show you where I find that in Ephesians that we do not need or have apostles and prophets as they had in the first century today. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul says that you are fellow citizens, verse 19, with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now there he's doing a two-way instruction in education he's talking about the old and the new testament and in so doing he's using a construction metaphor that i think we all can wrap our brains around and that is in, in some of your neighborhoods there might be construction going on right now 
There's construction going on in our neighborhoods. And, and what I find is the first thing that they do is they, they dig out a pit for the foundation, and then they pour the foundation, but they don't leave it there, do they? The foundation serves the purpose to be the base, but then you build upon it, and that foundation is no longer necessarily needed as you build. I mean, it is, but it's not used in the building above the foundation. And I think that analogy is what Paul's using here, is that when the foundation of the church, when the scriptures were completed, the apostles and the prophets no longer are needed. The writings continue on, but we do not need apostles and prophets today because we have everything that we, can, we need to be able to build upon that foundation. And so back in Ephesians 4, Paul says, speaking to his current audience, that Christ, our hero, gave apostles and prophets. Praise God. I mean, they lived in a day when somebody would say, this is the gospel. Another person would say, that is the gospel. Galatians 1. Paul even says in Galatians 1.8 that there were demonic spirits that came and said, this is the gospel. That was a crazy time. It was a time when you needed resources to be able to determine what is the truth and what is not. And back then you needed apostles and you needed prophets, but now we have the word of God. 2 Peter 1. We have a more sure word, even greater than the experiences of the first century. And so Christ gave apostles and prophets, and then he also gave, and these are in play today, evangelists. Now, this is not just, this is not televangelists, praise God. These are people who have the gift of evangelism, but more specifically, they plant churches. They go into areas where there is not existing, healthy, Christ-centered, gospel-following, disciple-making churches, and these evangelists plant churches. And then they don't just leave it there. They don't just leave planted churches. Those churches need what? The last office that Jesus gave. Shepherd teachers. They actually go together in the original language. These are shepherd teachers. And God has grace gifted the local church with these tools to be the starting point, to be the foundation. But what do these offices and these gifts do? Look at verse 12. Equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, the work of ministry is a, is a phrase that might be difficult for us to understand. So let me give you a, a quote or a quick sentence that I believe encompasses what it means to do the work of the ministry. That which contributes to discipleship, that's the work of ministry. The work of ministry is that which contributes to discipleship. Guess what? That takes place in the home, doesn't it? It takes place parent to children. It takes place children with parents. It takes place spouse to spouse. It takes place in the homes of singles. It takes place in the classrooms. It takes place in the cubicles. It takes place in the Sunday morning event. It takes place in small group. It takes place when you're pulling into the garage and when you're pulling out. Guess what? Every area of our life is an opportunity for the work in ministry. And when you can be able to identify an activity that you're doing that has as its outworking and impact making disciples. That is the work of ministry, and the local church is the tool for that. So he gives the gifts and the offices with the purpose of equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. 
But I want to expand us even beyond what I've just said to understand practically how does that look. I, I was observing a, a gentleman in our church a while back who was a dear servant. And he had a bucket and some drywall spackling and some tools. And I walked by him and I said, thank you for making disciples today. And he kind of gave me that look that I often get. Pastor, I don't understand what you're saying, but I'm going to nod my head and smile because you're pastor. <laughs> and I knew that, and so I explained to him, let me, let me tell you how you're making disciples. I don't have to do this today. I get to study the word. I get to prepare to preach the word. There are young people in our church that have young kids that if they were asked to do this, they would not be able to attend to their young kids. He's an empty nester. And then his smile and nod began to appear that he was getting it. Friend, this is a great reminder to us that every opportunity that we have to glorify God and to think of others more highly than ourselves and demonstrate these categories of holiness that we're pursuing and cultivating in our lives is an opportunity for us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Friends, remember the tools that God has given us. Remember the tools of the local church, but remember the blueprint and the goal. Look at verse 13. We build up the body of Jesus Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure and the stature and fullness of Christ. See, what, what Paul was modeling here is what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, and this is my summary, not every passage in Scripture speaks specifically of Christ, but I'm going to use every passage to get to him. I love that. This is what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, I'm, I've talked about apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherd teachers, and I'm talking about the equipping of the saints and building up the church and the body of Christ. But what is the objective? What is the end game? To look like Christ. To reflect him. That when we go and we put a mark on the wall to see how much we've grown, the, the measure is not our dad to see if we're getting taller than him. The measure is Christ. And you see how that impacts every area of our lives. The measure of my life as a husband is not someone else in this church. It is Christ. Ladies, the measure of you as a, a wife or a mom or a single person is not somebody else in the church or somebody on social media. It's Christ. And so what I am attempting to do by drawing this home before we move to point number four is to say like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 11, model me, model our elders, model our small group leaders, model the godly people in this church only to the degree that they are following the example of Christ. This is the tool that God has given us in the local church to fulfill the mission. So we need to remember our identity, remember our mission, remember our tools, and then number four, Realize your metrics. And by metrics, what I mean is a unit of measurement. How do we measure progress as disciples? And Paul unpacks it beautifully and practically. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. And I wish we had time to unpack each one of those phrases. They're, they're, they're rich in the original language. 
I mean, we, we get it in the English, in the ESV that I just read. It, it gets the point across, but it's even richer as you look at some of the words that talk about the bait that was put in an animal trap and how it would lure and entice people in or animals in until whop, it would close. It's right there in the text in the original. But friend, what we see is unfortunately, even in professing Christianity, there are these traps. All you have to do is look at the, the, the Christian book, top 100 list. And there are these sources in there. But boy, do they sound good. Boy, are they selling a lot of books. But they are deceitful. They are cunning. Look at the world around us. There are waves and winds that are blowing at the church of Jesus Christ. Don't you just sometimes see the, the legislation that's out there and the headlines that get weary? Don't you just feel like giving up? When you see the people that are being elected, when you see the, 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 the changes to uh, of the Title IX and all of these things that are going on in the world today, in our country, in our backyard, don't you get weary? But what Paul's saying here is one of the ways you can measure whether or not you're progressing in Christ is, are you growing in your stability? Are you growing in your stability? Are you not a YouTuber who is waking up every day to see the latest thing on YouTube and you're, oh, it's all falling apart? Are you that person who plays attention to politics and you're constantly anxious about it? Or when somebody comes out with some new trend in the church today that's different than what you've been used to, you're like, well, I'm going to go follow that. That's unstable. And friend, one of the ways you can tell whether you're progressing as a follower of Jesus Christ is, are you growing in your stability? When these things happen, you open the word of God and you say, oh, this is what it says. That's different. I'm going to follow this. When you see the headlines, you realize, again, the Roman Empire, very similar to what we're experiencing today. Doesn't necessarily mean that we're on the doorstep of the apocalypse. We could. And we are stable, and we are rooted in the gospel. We are rooted in the word of God. We go to this for our answers, not podcasters. One of the ways Paul reveals that we can measure our progress in Christ is our stability, but then... Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth. Let's stop right there. Are you courageous to speak the truth? We live in a day where truth is a very movable object, isn't it? Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And when somebody stands up with conviction and speaks the truth of God's word, that is not received well. In fact, sometimes there's passive-aggressive responses that are painful. Sometimes there's aggressive responses that are painful. Sometimes people lose their jobs. Are you courageous in speaking the truth? And I'm not talking about your truth. I'm talking about God's truth. That means you have to know it. So are you studying the truth? Are you learning the truth? Are you understanding the truth? But then, friends, some of you are like, amen, preach it, pastor. My next question is, are you growing in your delivery of truth in love? I'm talking about gospel love, Christ-reflecting love. And listen, Christ did not pull punches, did he? When there was truth to be said, he said the truth. But he always had as his objective to glorify his Father and to point others to the gospel. 
So friend, when we are courageous enough to share the truth and it is painful for somebody, is our objective to bring them to Christ, to grow them toward Christ, to grow them toward the gospel, or is it to prove yourself right? Or is it to make that person feel badly? One of the ways you can evaluate progress in your walk with Christ is to see, are you growing in your ability to speak the truth in love as a pattern? But then look at verse 15. Individually and as a church, are we growing up into Christ? Friends, next week we will celebrate our 12th anniversary. I never thought we would get here. But we have. And in going back through some of the pictures and some of the events and some of our history, I can see that by God's grace and for his glory, our church corporately and individual, is growing into Christ. We're becoming more evangelistic and sharing the gospel with our neighbors and our friends and our family. We are inviting people to come to this church to see Christ and inviting them to be in discipleship relationships. We are turning our fall festival not to say, okay, how can we bless our church only, but how can we connect to the community? I'm seeing examples of this. We've planted a church that just this morning celebrated its sixth anniversary in Bucharest, Romania. That's awesome. By God's grace and for his glory, we can see as a church and the individuals of our church that, man, we are growing in our ability to reflect Christ. Look at the promise that God gives in verse 16, from whom the whole body, when we are doing this, when we are following our mission, when we are reminded of our identity, when we are using the tools that he has given us, we will be joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That is his promise. And so, friends, I would say like the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians, we are excelling. Let's excel even more.